interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, there's a lot to think about, and uh, I have a few questions of my own, but I'm going to hold on to them, at least for now, uh, because we would like to give students in particular a chance to ask Dr. Lintz any questions that you might have. So Justin and I are going to uh, walk the aisles here and just raise your hand and we'll uh, come find you with the microphones. Who'd like to kick us off with a question? It's hard to raise your voice in a crowd of 300, isn't it? Uh, Lest somebody else think uh, differently of you. Uh, But uh, words matter. So somebody's going to ask a question. Right over here? Okay. If you could do me the favor of passing this down, please. Um. Going back to what you said about us created in God's image um, and, I guess, finding our identity in that, how would you separate um, the struggle to find identity from the believer and the non-believer, considering that, you know, uh, once we become saved, we take on the uh, righteousness of, of God, and we have to learn to, to think of ourselves as children of God where before we were alien and separate from him. Mm. Uh, a very good question, uh, but l- let me answer it by not. Um, <laughs> for I, I fear uh, that uh, we get to the conclusion too quickly. We, we assume the journey along the way is easier than it actually is. I, I think that the narrative of Israel's history, for example, God's chosen people, this remarkable clan, not because they were mighty, not because they were uh, numerous, not because they were powerful, but because God set his love upon them. Who is more prone to chase after the images of this world in that story than Israel? They knew the divine presence, that God was with them but they were peculiarly prone to chase the idols. I think that the lesson here is that uh, this peculiar relationship, and I'll argue a lot about relationship, uh, about the voices that connect us, uh, doesn't uh, restrain our hearts still from fleeing and trying to find significance and security on our own terms. I mean, here Israel, uh, you know the story, uh, six weeks out of Egypt. They've been in bondage. I mean, real deep slavery. We we just cut to the chase here. Uh, This is heinous. 
they're not crying out to God unless their bondage is profoundly repugnant to them and to their Lord. A remarkable set of uh, circumstances. They, they are brought out of Israel. They are liberated. They are freed. I mean, they see this remarkable story. The Red Sea parts the water, right? I mean, there's no movie could capture this set of, uh, of episodes. And God, God fills their pockets with the wealth of the Egyptians. I mean, this story is just too good to be true. And you're, you're thinking, gosh, Israel's going to get out there and they're going to just thank you, Lord. Six weeks out, what are they doing? Just what you and I do. We grumble. It's not enough. I want some more. I want more. And so they build this, build is probably an odd word, a golden calf. They'd seen the golden calf back in Egypt, actually. Probably lots of them around the Egyptian temples. And uh, this is Israel that has been delivered from bondage. And within weeks, they are worshiping like they used to. They still want God. They still want Yahweh on the mountain. But they want something close at hand they control. They built with their own hands. I dare say, I don't think, however we divide this world, believers or un-Christians or others, or uh, that any of us are immune to that deep temptation uh, to control our significance and our security. Uh, and uh, therein is the, the, the corruptibility of our identity. We can see it so easily in others. I mean, how many of you... Uh, sitting in a church pew maybe at some point in time, thinking only if so-and-so were here to hear that, that's just what they need to hear. We are so much better at diagnosing others than we are ourselves. But our own hearts are constantly prone. I I, I want to kind of... Flesh that story out, because it seems to me it's a very interesting plot. Lots of twists and turns in the story. And recognizing that we are embedded in that story helps us to see why we are prone, why we are constituted as we are, and therefore how how to recognize uh, our own peculiar idols rather than somebody else's. Uh, I have a question about, I guess you were talking about how a voice is around us sort of definitely influencing and sort of um, changing our own person. And uh, from, I guess, uh, partially I was thinking more of, um, I guess, in some sensory, like, ideas and, like, you know, in terms of how does, you know, voice, especially when we think about Scripture in the beginning, you know, the voice, the action of God and things happening as he speaks with things of, like, visual nature or perhaps like of uh, the written type of thing. So these things which are, you know, in today's society, like the visual, which is, you know, much more, uh, much a carrier of, I guess, a, or medium of 
showing people what they should be like rather than speech itself. And, you know, even in the past, like in, in the Greek, like Plato and Socrates, they thought that speech was more important than mm. the word. So right. how do these all, I guess, relate together? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, and rich and deep and complex, and I, I want to say yay and amen mostly. That is to say, though I'll focus on the distinctiveness of the voice, I, I, I do want to connect it with the eyes, right? with the ears, with our... Uh, are uh, the sensory malfunctions as well as the sensory functioning of our identities. And so I, I think a word, word in uh, uh, a story, word in a proverb, word in a parable, uh, must be taken into that context, both immediate and wider. So I, I think I mostly... Uh, Agree with you, but I, I want to draw our attention uh, here just at the outset uh, that words matter to us, and, and I think uh, again in a different age and a different time, uh, we might put it differently, bring a different emphasis. We tend to be visual more than uh, uh, verbal. Not not all of you. Uh, I won't tell you which one of my children that won't stop talking, but I've got one that never talks. Right? So I know we're all unique. Some are much more verbal. Some process reality verbally by talking. Others process it by silence. But as I was lecturing, for example, I, I guarantee 100% of you at some point in time were thinking of something else. A hundred percent of you were hearing yourselves think about something else, aren't you? And our minds are prone to wander. Uh, we may call it ADD, uh, but that's the social fabric that we all live in. Uh, Recognizing that is not to say, therefore, just pay attention. Um, it's rather to, I, I think, step back and reflect on the power of the images and of the words. And that's what I want to do. Right? Um, a, a, uh, a cultural commentator wrote a book uh, called Vinyl Leaves. It's about uh, Disney World. And uh, at Disney World, uh, I've taken the pilgrimage. Uh, there's this massive tree uh, in one of the exhibits. And uh, Stephen Feldman talks about 800,000 leaves on this tree, Robinson Crusoe's tree at Disney World. All of them vinyl. Uh, as a metaphor for this world that Disney created, uh, where we're almost to be speechless, passively simply to receive, uh, uh, to enjoy. There's never any garbage in the streets at Disney World. It's always clean. Everybody's smiling, except the parents at the end of a long day, right? And it's very expensive. We'll leave that aside for the moment. But one thing Disney doesn't want you to do 
is think. Right? And that was Stephen Feldman's uh, comment at the end of the book, actually. But I, I think too often we need to think about thinking, about the words and the voices in our lives, just to step back and engage that project. Uh, and uh, there's so many exciting things going on in a place like this where you are stimulated beyond belief. Uh, right. Moses grew up in the Egyptian courts, the royal courts, and uh, there was as much intellectual stimulation as the ancient world could have possibly imagined there. Right. By comparison to Moses, you've got, a, you, you've got an infinite number more intellectual stimulations. Right. We, we, you, it, it, here in a place like this is unimaginable. But it, it's important nonetheless to take the moment Step back and think about what you're thinking. Right. Um, you spoke a lot about your doubts about community, and mm. one of the things that I'm really kind of wondering is that most of us here belong to communities called churches. Um, you know, they, they seem to mostly function, um, and they have many of the side effects you've described, but... The very act of going to church is joining a community, and the, some of the language that you quoted, I believe, actually derives from the language of Christian revivalism. Um, so I guess I'm kind of wondering, how do you go to church? <laughs> Amen. Um, I, I asked that question vocationally and uh, avocationally, uh, that uh, the difference between the church I attend is that in five years, 80% of those folk will no longer be there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They will have finished their postdocs. They will have moved on. It's not an enduring community. Is it a community? Yes. And do we work and must work at, uh, at the bonds that hold that community together? Yes. Uh, and, and I think there are hopeful signs uh, that the the church is starting to think about the church. Uh, evangelicals, this tradition that I uh, uh, am embedded in, have too often thought about Christianity simply as a relationship, this private relationship between me and God. That Those days, I think, thankfully, are mostly behind us. And we do think about the public character of faith, that we belong to each other. But I still echo that colleague's words. I love community. I think we love community. We just couldn't count the cost of living in them, really. Right? Uh, uh, that we would actually not change jobs to stay at a church. That we would not move out of the city to stay at church. That we would not, and on the list might go. Right? A, a community isn't merely a, uh, a, a group brought together with special interest. Uh, and so uh, I, I do yearn, as I think most of us do, uh, for the next stage beyond this mythological individualism, the age of which we're departing. But how we get from where we are to that next stage, I think, is still uh, not yet clear. So, yay and amen to the desire and the concern. Um, had a group of students moved to Gordon-Conwell. Five of them came from Seattle. They'd gone to college together 
uh, and they were going to uh, they were going to be an enduring community. It was a very interesting group. Uh, uh, having grown up at the late part of the 60s, uh, uh, where communes, both Christian and uh, and drug-related communes, uh, uh, emerged. Uh, here was the um, a case study in 21st century commune living. And they they rented a house together. The five of them did. Uh, uh, one of uh, uh, two of them were married, um, but life intruded. New, uh, uh, it's no surprise. I mean, you, no uh, no punches pulled at this point. But one of the group started dating somebody outside of the group. Seriously, and that person outside of the group didn't want to become a part of this group. Uh, the married couple had children. The single people weren't quite sure how you relate to a couple with children. And the couple of children weren't quite sure how you related to single people any longer. One got a job offer in Tennessee. The other one got a, another one got a job offer in Virginia. Uh, uh, well, before long, it, uh, the community lasted about 18 months. There, there, it, it, there are just enormous obstacles uh, to real, enduring, permanent communities. Now, Having said that, I think the church and the family need to get their heads around this one. Uh, it's going to take more than a generation to do it. Dr. Lentz, a lot of um, psychologists and philosophers talk about um, the innate desire within humanity to communicate and to express itself and to reach a point of self-actualization. And I'm wondering, how can we as Christians begin to communicate more with God and reach a point of spiritual self-actualization mm-hmm. to the point where we can communicate and express ourselves to the rest of the world and bring them into a deeper communication and relationship with God? Yeah. Um, again, a terrific question. And there are really powerful analogies uh, to be drawn uh, uh, between that sphere of um, an individual gaining speech and therefore gaining agency, gaining responsibility, uh, and uh, we who stand before uh, a God who has communicated as a person. Um, But uh, the danger here, I think, uh, and I often, I often see the, the negative side first before I plug in the positive. I, I think we have too often thought of actualization simply in individualistic terms. Uh, so we do need to learn uh, this kind of communication uh, with the God who created us with his voice. Uh, but in the first instance, I think there is a responsibility to, to listen before we talk. Um, and in a world of talkers, most of us are very ill-equipped at listening. Listening carefully, responsibly, accountably. Um, and so I do think that there is those 
two dimensions uh, here that I would emphasize in the long run. We gain our voice, shall we say, before God by belonging, belonging to others. And we gain a voice before the living God by listening first. Uh, And those are skill sets in uh, short supply in our time. Uh, But one of the remarkable things, isn't it? Uh, God is not hindered by my obstacles, nor by my cynicism or hopelessness. His voice is not like mine when I talk to Lucas. Right? His voice has this strange quality. It brings life. It breaks through all those things I don't think it can. So I, I hope, not in my ability to listen, actually, but in God's ability to speak. Uh, what, uh, what Nicholas Walterstorff calls the divine discourse. But in this strange discourse of God, real action is performed. Uh, Again, we'll pick up that those sets of issues uh, all, all day tomorrow. It's one of these uh, wonderful questions where you could uh, preach a sermon, but this isn't the moment. We'll take the time for one more question, and then we'll need to wrap things up. Um, could you? I was wondering if you could speak to uh, at least in the Christian narrative of uh, actualization in the sense of loss. Because um, I know that Jesus in the gospel narrative says, you know, whoever desires to gain his life has to lose it in a sense. So I think that um, in Christianity, there's a sense of gaining something only when you've given first, uh, in a sense. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that in terms of our desire for community and our desire to be a part of one another's uh, lives. Because I think that uh, it's an important thing. It's sort of like uh, if you're a bird, but you never jump out of the nest, then you sort of you're sort of a bird, but you're sort of not a bird if you haven't jumped out yet. So I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to how we how we become actualized in a divine sense by giving to God and to others. Yeah. Um, as um, some have written about, God is uh, a gifting God. He gives away gave us a son. Uh, As a pungent and rather provocative uh, uh, realization that in in our inner being, we are constituted to give ourselves away. Uh, That when we seek to save ourselves... Uh, we lose everything, as Jesus says. Uh, but uh, when we give ourselves, we find ourselves. It's a strange tension. The first, as you know the phrase, are last in the kingdom. Now, that's not my kingdom. I wouldn't have done it that way if I were God. I would have said the first are first. And I'd like to be at the front of the line, as Peter says. Right? On the right or the left, Lord? But seriously, that's how most of us think. Most of us don't think that the last are first. 
deeply ingrained in us is this uh, resistance about giving ourselves away, lest we give ourselves away and there's nothing left. That strange irony uh, uh, that uh, in, the, in the gift, we receive more. In the, the greatest rape of our culture is Christmas, I think. One of them, anyway. This notion, it's all about getting. It's all about having. It's all about possession. After all, that's what Jesus would want, or something of that sort, right? I mean, what a perverse celebration at the heart of this gospel, where in the incarnation is the sacrifice of his very identity as God in the form of a little baby. Right? Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about things, our possessions. And as, as, uh, as many have reminded us, and especially those uh, outside the West, that our possessions now own us that we are weighed down by our affluence and that our moral voice rings very shallow. You know that, I know that. But living differently is very costly. That's the point I want to think about. Thank you very much, Dr. Lentz. Please join me in expressing our appreciation. And finally, a reminder about the schedule tomorrow. Dr. Lentz will be speaking all day at Bethel Grove Bible Church starting at 9 a.m. Our uh, pre-registration is very strong. We've already got 100 people signed up, which is the best numbers that I remember. Uh, And I hope that others of you will join us and walk in. If you are not pre-registered, it's fine. You're welcome. Just show up a little bit early. Uh, I will let you know that if you're not pre-registered, We cannot make lunch available to you, so you're on your own for lunch. But otherwise, please join us all day. Tomorrow evening, Women's Community Building, 7 p.m. Dr. Lynch will be preaching again at Bethel Grove for both services Sunday morning. Thank you very much for joining us this evening.